0: Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. I'm Mark Pugh, Pastor Outreach and Operations here at the at the Vine, and it's a it's a pleasure to be here to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, it's exciting to, whether you're here live or or in uh, online. We're really thankful to be here. We're still in this sermon series called Grace for Living. It's in the book of Titus. And today we're going to be in chapter two of, of Titus. We're looking at uh, verses one to 10. If you guys want to go ahead, you can get your Bibles out. You can get your apps out. It's chapter two, one to 10. Um, you know, over the next couple of weeks, as we look at chapter two in Titus, we're going to see that God's grace impacts everything it impacts the way we live, it impacts our priorities, it impacts our identity, and it impacts what we teach others. It reminds me of uh, many years ago when I was a young guy and I was getting ready to go off to college. I lived about 15-20 minutes away from the University of Tennessee and um, I slept in this one room downstairs and right beside it there was this other room and my mom took me down again This is the day before I'm supposed to go and she's pointing at this green looking machine And she's pointing at this like almond looking machine and she says that's the washer and that's the dryer <laughs> And I remember a little bit I paid a little bit of attention to it and I was like okay You can do the colors you keep them in cold water and the whites in warm water But I didn't pay a whole lot of attention semester goes on occasionally I'm going home getting a good meal on Sunday And I bring the laundry upstairs. I'm thinking, I'm not all that great at this laundry thing. I put it in the laundry room, and then I go hang out with friends, or maybe I go study or whatever. And I come back and I realize, I'm pretty good at this laundry thing because it's always done when I get back. (laughs) So, fast forward, I'm married now to Rhonda, and uh, this many years later, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm gonna help out with the laundry. And so I take that little blue ball and I put some bleach in it and I seal it up, and I have that same feeling. Like, hey, maybe something's not right with this. Maybe I need to go ask. So I go check in with Rhonda, and the next thing I know, I am no longer doing any laundry at at the house at all. To the point where she goes to Kenya to go visit the children's home, the orphanage that we support there. Like 10 years later, we've had a new washing machine for like seven or eight years, and I'm in there while she's gone, pushing the on button going, it's not working. I don't even know how to do the washing machine. Okay, so this isn't about how stupid I am. It's really about the importance of passing on that key information, teaching others so that they flourish. And my hope is that today, as we understand how grace impacts our lives, we'll see how much more valuable it is to teach sound doctrine to the next generation. So if you guys would, let's um, let's look at our passage today. This is in Titus It's uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to unpack this scripture using comma. We talked about comma a lot last year. It's it's this approach to Bible study. It stands for context, observations, meaning, motive, and application. So we're going to kind of run through the, the passage that way. So we'll start with context. And we, we think, well, what is context? Well, we look a little behind us in chapter 1, make sure we understand what's going on there. Maybe we read the end of the, of the book, understand what's going on in the whole chapter. We think about history that's going on. And so we just get some good context. And I got this great photo I wanted to show you guys from 2019, before COVID, we go to Greece and we went over to Turkey as well. And on the, the journeys of the Apostle Paul, the church took the trip. It was a great learning trip. Really made scripture come alive when you're sitting there looking at something that's 2,000 years old and it's written about right in front of you. And so, what you're looking at, this is super fascinating to me, was a church in Crete that we went to. The room before the sanctuary had this in there. And I'm like taking a picture. I oh, don't you know what it is. And then I read and I realize that's the skull of Titus. That's his head. So for 2,000 years, they've kept this. And, and so when I think about this, I go whether I'm a believer or I'm an unbeliever, but maybe I'm a little skeptical. We've all had some struggles, occasions like, well, what is going on? Is this real? Hey, this is real. This is history. Paul's talking to a man named Titus, and that man made such a difference in the island of Crete 2,000 years ago, they've kept his head in this shrine. That's a big deal. So the book of Titus, it talks a lot about how God's grace impacts us and impacts the way we live. And so right away, we can see the apostle Paul, he tells us that we're called to teach sound doctrine to the next generation. We see that in verse one. A few minutes, we're gonna explain what is sound doctrine, but right now we're in context and we're thinking, why is this important? Like, why is teaching... Sound doctrine in the next generation is so important to Paul, and if, if you've spent much time in the Old Testament, you will see over and over and over again God's people, they abandon their faith, or they become uninvolved with their faith. They become more interested in being accepted culturally with who's around them and worshiping these false gods than they do about loving God or obeying his commands. They broke the covenant that God made with them over and over again. Eventually, they just quit teaching the next generation. A great example, this is found in Judges early on, and we see in this case that Joshua dies. And they've stopped. It says at the very end of the passage, it says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done. So they follow him. They follow Moses. They follow Joshua. All the elders are there. They're in the promised land. And they're teaching God's word. And they're teaching who Christ is. And then they quit. That's a big problem. You now I think we see it happening today. I worried for my girls. You know, are, are men being trained up? In the gospel, or are they being trained with sound doctrine to be to be humble in their walk with the Lord, so that they can lead my girls? I don't know. We got a bigger problem here in the church in the United States. Maybe not so much divine right this minute, but the church in the United States—it's not growing. People clearly don't understand God's grace, and they're not motivated to teach others about it. And here's the biggest issue with this: I think we're it. I think we're God's plan to make this happen. I don't think there's another plan. I think think God wants us to share sound doctrine with those people around us, that hopefully this would be a privilege for us, as well as maybe a little bit sobering, that it's up to us. You know, here in the United States, we don't forget our history. We teach it in our schools. We, We teach our families, our family history. So why are we not interested in teaching sound doctrine to the next generation? God's grace should impact the way we live and what we teach others. And as we're going to see next week in verse 11, that it's God's grace that through his work on the cross that really should impact our life and make us live so differently as we enjoy and understand what that means, that his finished work affects all of our life. This is what we teach. This is what we instruct our family on. The verse says, for the, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What an unbelievable gift that is. For us as Christians That to know that we have eternal salvation, that we have a promise of heaven because of what Christ did on the cross for us, taking away our guilt, taking away our sin, taking away our shame, and giving us his righteousness, that's the gospel message. That's what we're supposed to instruct other people on. So that's some context. Let's look at the observations. When we just observe the text, kind of speed read through it, look for some repetitive words, look for things we don't understand. <clears throat> a couple of things pop out at me in verse one. Words seem clear, but there's a little more to it. It's three words in verse one. It says, teach. Sound doctrine. So that word teach, it's not like a formal word, really. It's just to speak freely about it. It's ordinary conversation. The word sound, Pastor John's unpacked for us previously. We saw that in chapter one. It's, it's to be healthy. It's well. It's where our word hygiene comes from. And then doctrine, what that means is it's not some theologically intense word. It just means instruction. So that helps us understand the meaning of this passage. And then we observe a bunch of different groups of people that Paul is talking about. If we just kind of look through this, in verse two, we see older men and how's grace impacting the way they live? And then in verse three, we see older women. And in verse four, we see younger women. And in verse six, we see younger men. And then in verse eight, we see these bond servants. So what's a bond servant? And they're, they were super common back then. They're the workers, but they were indebted they were basically slaves to a master. That's who a bond servant was. And sometimes those masters were hard and sometimes they were, they were good to them. <clears throat> so that's the group of people we see as we observe the test. There's, there's these so that's that we ought to also notice. There's this phrase, so that's important as you're studying the Bible to understand what does that mean. It kind of tells us why do we do what we do? And there's three of them found here, that so that's or that's. And And uh, and, and in our passage, it tells us that we do what we do to bring glory to God. That's what God encourages us us to do. That's the grace of God coming out in us. And so that's the context. We understand now a little bit about some of these words and observations. Let's look at meaning, motive, and application. So in verse 1, we see an important phrase. And it says, but as for you. And this is where the Apostle Paul, he seems to be telling Titus, hey, you're supposed to behave a little differently than somebody else. So who is this somebody else that he's talking about? And that's these, uh, they're found in chapter one. This is what Pastor John preached to us about, that that there's these deceivers and empty talkers. They're going on and, and having a lot of influence in the island of Crete. They were the false teachers. And so just like today, We see people in the culture around them that they were not teaching sound doctrine. And so Paul, what he's saying is that we got to take an opposite approach. He's saying, but hey, as for you, you need to say something different. You need to be teaching sound doctrine. And the way we're defining sound doctrine is is looking towards Jesus and his finished work on the cross in all of life's matters. That's how we're defining it. See, we don't teach what the world teaches. We don't teach that money's all important or that we have to give our kids everything or that our careers are so, so vital. We teach Christ. Unfortunately, today, personal opinion and the cultural standard seems to be maybe more important than what's in God's word. We see that a lot. We have to be super careful not to teach that fulfillment in life, joy in life, comes from Jesus Plus something. It's not Jesus plus something. That's not sound doctrine. We we don't teach that. So let's talk a little bit about what does looking towards Jesus and his finished work on the Christ, on the cross, what's that really look like? Like what's a practical example of that? And and so as you think about life and you go, well, I gotta make some tough decisions. Maybe I'm My kid's going to homeschool, public school, private school, or I'm changing jobs, or I'm maybe going to buy and sell a house. All these things could have a lot of answers to them, and they may not be wrong, none of the answers. But as I'm looking to Jesus and his finished work on the cross, I'm saying, Lord, help me. Help me with this. I want to bring you glory through this decision. I believe if you do that, you'll see anxiousness and go away. Because there may be a moment where you you don't even hear. You're not really sure still what to do. And then you say, I'm going to go do this. And Lord, you close it. You make it not happen if it's not supposed to happen. Because you're putting all your heart and trust in him and what he's got for you versus the circumstances that you're asking for. That's how you trust his finished work. Or maybe you're comparing yourself to others or you're thinking in a certain situation, you just don't measure up. And you pause and you say, what's the truth of this? The truth is Jesus is on the throne and he loves me and I'm a son. I'm an heir to the throne and I believe that and I realize I'm accepting some things that aren't really true. And again, the fruit of that is peace and a beauty. Maybe we're in pain. Maybe you've got a hard circumstance health-wise that's going on. Those are really hard to deal with. But even then, as we really understand Jesus' work on the cross, we know we've got heaven promised to us. That this, this, this pain we're in, we can give it up to him to heal us. And he will heal us. Maybe it's not today. Maybe it's in heaven. But this is a momentary affliction that we have to believe. We have to, we have to trust his word in these things. This is how we trust in Jesus and his finished work. So let's look a little bit at how grace impacts the way each one of these groups that we've already talked about lives. And you first notice that there's a big context of kind of teaching in the family. And it just highlights, I think, how important it is that we would teach our sons and daughters and we would teach our grandsons and granddaughters. The first group of people that we're looking at that we see is in verse two it's older men. Paul says that the the grace of God should cause older men to be sober-minded. And sober-minded, that means to to show some restraint, to show moderation. And he's actually picking up drinking wine. And that's a good call-out for us. We need to be careful to not use wine as an escape or alcohol as an escape to our problems today. We say that drinking in moderation is okay. But maybe Paul here is challenging How are we defining moderation? And if we're giving this up to the Lord, are we really asking God, how much should I be drinking? We see uh, older men that they're to be dignified. They're not superficial. They're not frivolous. They don't laugh at immoral things. They don't laugh at the expense of others. I got to tell you, when I was in the business world, I struggled with this. I still struggle with it at times. Sometimes I think I'm looking for my approval with whomever I'm right there with to laugh with more than I'm looking for my approval from Jesus. And that's hard. You know, what we laugh at, what we say, says a lot about us, says a lot about what we believe. In verse 2, we see that, that older men, they're supposed to be self-controlled. They show judgment. They show restraint. And then lastly, we see older men, there to, to be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. This really means that they just don't question God's word, that they're willing to bear the burdens of others, that they give love maybe even when it's not deserved. They'll forgive and they can endure hardships and difficult situations that they they use their resources wisely for God's kingdom, not their own kingdom. And they're even okay when their personal plans fail. I tell you, that sounds a lot like flourishing, In God's grace. So as we look at the the next group of people, older women, we quickly see that Paul, he's calling out drinking wine as well here. You know, this is obviously a cultural problem in Crete, as it is here in the United States. Paul warns older women to not slander or gossip, and that apparently as you're drinking, that's going to happen more and more. So he's, he's warning them about that. And Paul also asks older women to be reverent. And that's to be like holy or priest-like. And, and you know, my view of this is I kind of imagine this elder woman who, who walks into the room and people, they just sense this natural respect they carry. They can see that this, this lady has had ups and downs of life. and It's built character and they've had God's steadfastness. You know, for me, that was my mom. I'm fortunate. A lot of people don't have that, but man, when my mom walked in a room, the room changed. People got more serious. My mom was respected because she was real. Maybe most importantly, though, older women are taught to teach younger women. We see older women, they're to that to model love. To the younger women, they're, they're to, to model that self-control, to be pure, to be chaste, to be moral. And they're, they're to take care of the home. The younger woman is to take care of the home. And that's kind, of a, <clears throat> that's kind of a touchy subject today. You know, Rhonda and I had to really work through what does that mean? What should we do? And, you know, we realized being able to be home and raise kids, that was an amazingly wonderful thing to do. It was great. And there is scripture that supports a woman working outside the home to still care for their home. They're both good. And I think what we need to realize here is that young women need to provide for their home just like men, but in many times it will look differently. The main watch out here is anytime a man or a woman puts their career before taking care of home or before their faith that's going to end up in a problem. And if we thought about, okay, how am I taking this to, to Jesus and his finished work? We would we'd ask God, what do I do with this? We would expect an, an answer. And if I believe if, <clears throat> if you're really putting forth in your heart that you want to glorify God and whatever that answer is, you're going to be good. It's going to be okay. Young women are taught to be Kind. I kind of thought that was a little funny. I'm like, why kind? Like, aren't we all supposed to be kind? But you know what? A young mom's job is tough. I imagine it was a lot tougher back then. Could you imagine raising kids without veggie tails? (laughs) You know, unfortunately, a, a young mom is not really appreciated a lot of times. And the household, they kind of caused that. I know we did that in my house a lot where Rhonda really didn't feel appreciated. But when a man senses a woman's love, when a man knows that his wife respects him, man, it it changes his outlook on life. It is so life-giving. A woman's words of encouragement builds confidence in her husband, and in her kids, and I'm sure that is part of why Paul wrote this. It is important, and it's hard. You know, young, a young woman's to be submissive. That's another, another touchy one. Uh, I, I've taught on submission before. I don't have time to unpack it fully here today. I'd encourage you, if you really wanna dig into submission, it's on our website. It was from 2018, I looked it up, it's like March. 2018, if you want to learn more about it, go check out that sermon. But to summarize this today, we see in Genesis, we know there's a natural order of things that God has put out. We see it in Ephesians 5, and 23, that God has said Jesus is the head of the church and men are the head of the family. However, the verse right before that, we need not to forget about, verse 21 says that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think God's design for marriage is for women and men to delight in each other, that they would understand God's love for them, and that would motivate their love for each other, that they would point each other back to Jesus and his finished work, that they would understand love equals sacrifice in action. And I think if a, if a, a wife sees a, a man godly sacrificing, she's going to probably be okay about submitting. From verse 5, we see this, this young women, why are they to act this way? Again, there's the so that here. So that they're, they're, they're doing this so that God's word is not reviled or insulted or slandered. This is how they display their lives differently to others. You know, if, if a young woman's not doing that, the unfortunate part is the message of Christ kind of gets hard to receive. You know, if somebody says, well, if that's what Jesus is about, I don't have anything to do with them," And that's, that's not bringing glory to God. So let's look at our next group, which is the younger men. <clears throat> so when I first saw this, I thought, wow, that's kind of funny. I guess God just thought that's all the young guy can handle. Like the older guys got all this stuff and the younger and the women, but you just, man, just please be self-controlled. <laughs> but the word urge here, um, it's parakalia. And it's a strong word. Titus is to urge. He's to plead, to exhort, to beg men to behave this way. They're to, to be virtuous. They're to be humble in Christ, in their actions, Versus the way Greek society was that men were mainly edifying themselves. Okay, so we move on to our last group, and this is shows us how grace really can impact how we work for others as we look at the bond servant. The bond servant, first thing we see is there to be submissive. It's as if these workers are being a soldier submitting to their commanding officer. It's universal. They don't argue. They, they just do what they're supposed to do as long as it's morally acceptable. That's how we're to behave in our workplace. We're to be submissive and we're to be well-pleasing and argumentative, not argumentative. What, means that, what that means is, is really that we don't complain. You know, we're not causing strife in our workplace. We don't grumble about our assignment and we're not causing uh, problems for our employers. If you guys are doing that, stop it. That's terrible. We don't want to do that. That's causing a bad culture for your place of work. I, I read a, a commentary. I had this quote. It said, the, soul in, the soul in disposition has never yet won a soul for Christ. But to clarify this a little bit, I, I worked in the, the business world for a long time. Just two years ago, I was at a marketing firm. And, and there was many a day that we were talking about doing something. And there was an idea shared. And I was like, yeah, we're not doing that. I was pushing back on with the owner. But the, but the difference here is, is healthy conflict is good. Some conflict is okay if it's done in the right way. It makes an organization better, but it's gotta be done in a healthy way. And I'm sure the owner knew that I was for him, that I was for the company. And I think that's what well-pleasing and not argumentative means. And so then lastly, in verse 7 and 8, we see Titus, but Paul's really not talking to a group. He's talking to Titus, but we can see it applies to us because there's this plural tense at the end of it. And we see another so that here. We see our good works help us to, to almost earn respect, to earn our rights here, that the gospel would not be criticized. That's our so that. That's why we do these good works, that we ought to act with some level of virtue to again earn respect from others before we start telling people what to do. Our hope is that our good behavior makes it worse so nobody would criticize us or criticize the church or Jesus. So we've seen the observations, the context, the meaning. Let's look a little bit at our motive, at the heart's motive. And before we go there, I I feel like we need to pause for a second and realize, hey, we've talked about a lot of to-dos. There's a lot of to-dos that we're not going to do. We're going to fail on a lot of this stuff. I mean, we're going to let ourselves down, right? We're going to have our own expectations. We're not going to meet them. We're not going to meet other people's expectations. You know what's really hard about that? And the shame is that it causes shame. When we don't live up to this, there's this level of guilt that we carry, and guilt and shame is not from the Lord. So what we've got to do is pause in those moments because this will happen we got to believe in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and say, hey, he still approves of me. Jesus is on the throne today, and I am a son, and yeah, I failed, but how thankful I am. This just shows us our complete dependence upon Jesus, and it's not about our work. So as we think about the motive of our heart, it's like the question when we're reading Scripture and we see that and go, why do I not want to obey this? That's our heart's motive that we have to ask And so in today, it would be like, well, what's preventing us from wanting to teach others to look to Jesus and his finished work for all of life? I think we all know we're we're teaching stuff to other people. (laughs) Whether we realize it or not, we're doing that. We're, We're passing on what is the most important thing in our life to other people around us. So if you had to ask yourself that, what would the people around you think? What do they think is most important to you? What are you teaching them, or what are you not teaching them? That's a great heart motive question to ask here. You know, unfortunately, I I think part of our problem is we really like the comforts and the entertainment that we have in this world. And we're not necessarily looking and being focused on Jesus and his kingdom. So the application, let's look at the last letter of comma here and you know, in our passage today, we see Paul, he's, he's told us we got to understand what grace is and how it impacts our life, and that motivates us to teach others. And so as we, in this church, we come to new seasons of life, we should be looking around and going, how am I caring for teaching sound doctrine to the next generation behind me? Anybody that is younger than me in faith, how am I teaching them. And this is part of why we say at this church, it's like we don't want people to just hang out in their own age and stage. I mean, having a life group in that way, that is fine. But we've got to go make friends that are of different ages than us. We are called to do this. This church needs to be multi-generational in its teaching of others. It is a very, very important thing. And when we think about teaching sound doctrine here, What we're really saying in terms of what the vine's thinking is it's discipleship. And there's a a little definition I'm going to share of discipleship at the vine. It says discipleship is the process of becoming a growing follower of Christ who is being conformed to the image of Christ, growing in grace, knowledge, and obedience, and equipping others to do the same. So this is super important to equip others to do the same. You know, this concept, concept was uh, really important to, to me and my family. When, when Ron and I first uh, became believers, <clears throat> uh, we, we joined a discipleship group, and this lady, Josie, she shows up, and she's starting to hang out with my wife, and she's discipling her. And, uh, and then 20 years earlier, well, a, a few years after that, but 20 years ago when the church, the Vine, was just starting up, my wife was getting involved in the youth ministry. And she was discipling this young lady named Vicki Fields. And Vicki moved to Baylor University and went out west. And she came back east. And and then all of a sudden, my girl, Reese, is going to Tennessee, University of Tennessee, where I grew up last fall. And as God ordains it, Vicki happens to be living in Knoxville. And she happens to find out that Reese is going to the University of Tennessee. She reaches out to Ron and is like, hey, I'd like to meet Vicky." And now they're, I mean, I'd like to re, uh, meet Reese. And now they're two peas in a pod. We, we fed Vicki this summer at our house. She is discipling Reese. And this happened because Reese knows this is super important. Reese is excited to disciple girls in her church in Knoxville now, middle school girls. And all that started because of this church's youth ministry that they had a focus on discipleship. And we had a a wonderful woman, Julia Nickel, that that mentored Reese for years, and Tara Collins is mentoring my youngest now. This is important. This stuff impacts lives. And then, you know, my story's a little different, right? My story's a lot harder than that. Like, I didn't have all these wonderful people like Rhonda had pouring into me. I got stuck for the last 15 years. I've had a man named, he's a difficult guy, John Adams. John Adams. Yeah, and so, but the reality is for the last 10 years, John's made a bigger impact in my life than anybody else. Amen. Amen. And he does it because he loves Jesus and he lets the Holy Spirit lead him to change him and he pours into me. Our ultimate goal here is not about how many people we can disciple. It's about letting Jesus change us and helping us to teach his word to others and we start with our family and then as God directs us we disciple other people you know again our youth is doing this right now there's over 20 mentors mentoring youth leaders today and we want that across our whole church that is a big desire for us. That's a major goal for us this year: is discipleship. We would love to see more people entering into discipling relationships. And I'd encourage you if you're interested in this, because we we not only do we need people to be disciple, we need disciple makers. We need people willing to disciple others. If you have any desire of that, pray about it. Please, we're going to have some info on our website that you can get uh, involved in it if you go there. But But start with praying about it. You know, as we pause on our sermon now and end, and and we move towards this time of communion, I'd ask us to to really pause. Pause our hearts and, and, and realize that teaching sound doctrine to the next generation is really important. It's more important than learning about laundry. So as we go silent and we prepare for communion, ask the Lord what's in your heart that's preventing you from wanting to do this. Ask the Lord to to help you confess, is there any sin in your life? Maybe even reveal sin that you're not aware of. And then think about, Lord, who who can I disciple or who can disciple me so that I'll grow and be more and more like you. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at The Vine CC. Have a great week.